Hello, and thank you for tuning into Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. I'm your host, David Lizabram. The California Lawyers Association is the bar association for all California attorneys. Our mission is to promote excellence, diversity, and inclusion in the legal profession and fairness in the administration of justice and the rule of law. In this episode, I'll be talking to Erica Bristol. Erica is an intellectual property attorney and commercial mediator specializing in intellectual property disputes. She's also actively involved in the IP law section. Erica and I discuss her background, including her love of heavy metal music and motorcycles and Formula One and everything with a motor, how she got into mediation, and her thoughts about why lawyers need to learn more about statutory interpretation. And as you'll hear, Erica is just a bright, amazing personality and brings a lot of fun and joy to every conversation. I hope you feel that coming through your headphones or speakers. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Erica Bristol. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, let's see. It's uh, it's fun to talk to somebody who is so deeply involved in the IP section. You know, we've interviewed members of the section as well as uh, you know people, other attorneys who are not necessarily involved. But um, I'm sure a lot of the people listening are familiar with you to some point. So this will be a chance to get to know you a little bit better and talk about also some interesting uh, topics that hopefully will be useful to the audience. So to get started. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up, and did you always want to be a lawyer? How did you kind of find yourself in that the legal career? <laughs> yeah, like I grew up in Altadena, California. I don't know if your if your listeners know where that is. It's just north of Pasadena, and it's right next to the foothills. It's very beautiful up there. Um, it, it really hasn't changed much since I left. And I was a little bit different from other people in my family, not in a weird way, but I just. <laughs> I listened to like thrash metal music and you know rode motorcycles, and so my my family wondered where are you? Where are you who are you? Are you really our our sister and brother and child? And I just realized I had a you know connection with music, and I loved debating and analyzing things. And so so wait, um, hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you because people are gonna be interested. <laughs> so how did you get into the the heavy metal music and motorcycle scene? Was that popular where you were? I mean, yeah, you know, what happened? My dad was an unusual dad. He always had unusual classic cars like Carmen Ghia's and, you know, old Datsuns. Um, really, he had a really fine sense of cars. And we always watched road racing. We watched MotoGP or Formula One, but we would watch NBC Sports all the time. And we were always watching road racing. And he had an incredible, incredible taste in music. So we we were listening like we were little tiny kids listening to Steely Dan, you know, <laughs> and analyzing. I mean, we didn't know, but that's the kind of music we were listening to. So I think um, there was a great influence by my father. Um, we we used to go to auto shows all the time, car shows, I think motorcycle shows. And, you know, as a kid, you don't realize how much of an influence that has on you. So I think for me, I was always into cars and bikes and racing. And as people on the IP section can tell you, almost to the point of ad nauseum, I'm really into Formula One and MotoGP. I think now thinking back, it was probably the influence of my dad on those things. And so he he would love, we we always had books around. My mom always had um, libraries of books. You know, we just saw the names. Like we were kids, we'd see like Erica Jong. We didn't know who that was, like Animal House. We just, we just knew those names because we saw them on the back of books. 
you know, when I got older, I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a, a bass player because I play bass. And then I realized, oh, musicians are poor. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go to law school and maybe be an entertainment lawyer. And, and you all know how hard it is, right, to get into entertainment <laughs> law unless you really, really try. So I went in-house as a corporate lawyer. Well, hold on. Where did, you, where did you go to college? Where did you go to law school? I went to Cal State LA. I was working full-time and going to school full-time at night. And I just I worked my butt off to get really, really good grades. Got into UCLA, which was great. Yay, go Bruins. And then went in-house out of law school. And then I don't think they had – I don't think everybody there really liked IP. They're like, eh, you do it. And I'm like, this <laughs> is the greatest stuff in the world. I mean, really, I thought it was great. So I started doing all the licensing and, you know, software development and uh, maintaining um, IP portfolios for a long time. And then um, I found out about mediation. I forgot how I got introduced to it. I think I took a mediation course and I started doing some voluntary mediation for the state and federal courts. And I realized that when I did IP cases, I was learning so much about contract language and the disputes that the parties were having. I could take that back into the in-house practice and say, okay, fix these, fix these contract clauses. Okay, change mm-hmm. this, do that, right? And so I, I left in-house, tried a little bit to do mediation for a while, went here and there, wasn't the perfect situation. And so now that's where I am today. I do a little bit of everything. I have clients that I do some work for. I still do some mediations and I do some business uh, consulting. And once a year, I teach at a law school out in Santa Barbara in Ventura. So I do a little bit of everything. And how, how long has it been since you left that your last uh, position where you were your own boss? I was in-house. I left in 2012, and I've kind of been a sole proprietor since then. You know, the scary thing about leaving a, a full-time either job or practice is that it's difficult and not impossible to go back because you have so much freedom, right? You have mm-hmm. um, freedom to read, freedom to learn, freedom to debate and discuss. And so it's, it's really hard thinking about being an eight hour a day attorney, you know, and sitting in an office day after day. I think I've been doing a lot of work virtually. So moving to the virtual you know, environment right now really isn't that scary for me. But the best part about it is you don't, you don't have to get dressed half the time unless somebody wants to turn on the video camera. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I don't uh, think, I, don't the freedom. Mm-hmm. I don't think we talked about where you were in house. So I went. I worked at California Association of Realtors. Mm-hmm. I, that's a big trade association. I really didn't work for the association. CAR has a bunch of for-profit um, technology affiliates. So I really did the work for the affiliates, doing their licensing agreements and software agreements. CAR has a major real estate software. If you're buying a house, you're probably using some of their forms, or your um, real estate agent, either in California or across the nation, it's a good chance they're using the software with like a state association forms embedded in it. And then there's all the integration between MLSs and other products and services. So I did a lot of um, that work and maintained the trademark portfolio and you know, all the licensing, all that good stuff, which I love. I mean, I think I love technology because it's an IP because it's always changing and you're always learning something new. And that's really important for me to be challenged. And so IP really does that for me so you are in house so you never when you're in house you don't have to deal with 
finding clients and and it's not like you're even at a firm where there's you know somebody who's responsible for finding clients so how did you go about you know when you started your own practice how did you go about finding clients developing those skills and and those relationships uh, well first of all word of mouth and referrals i asked you know friends and family and colleagues how do you you know how do you get clients how do you go out there and market yourself and i really i don't I don't love doing that. I mean, I love getting the deal, but I don't necessarily like doing the work after you get it. It's kind of fun, a little mm-hmm. challenging. You can get somebody to commit to find a contract. Hey, and then, oh, wait, I have to do five to 10 to 15 hours of work after that. <laughs> yep. So, um, I, I, asked, I asked friends who had their own firms. I asked people who were in firms. And I realized that, you know, w- working at a firm is, is great. I think um, any new lawyer should start out at a firm for structure right, and to get to understand a corporate way of doing things and a professional way of doing things. I think it saves a lot of time. And in your career, you have more options if you have that you know, firm background. But I have get referrals. Um, I don't put myself out there as a full-time law practice because I really don't want to be that. Um, I want it to be more of a flexible schedule um, mm-hmm. and work remotely when I want to, not necessarily in an office. And so that's what I do now. My practice is really catered more to business professionals who need to work and work with me in the evening hmm. and, and not during the day. So my office hours are 6 to 10. And so clients hmm. can set up appointments to talk to me in the evening. And work is exchanged in the evening. And ex- the expectation is that you probably won't see emails in work or calls um, during the day. It'll probably happen at night. And, and that works a little bit better for the clients that I have who maybe are doing full-time, you know, they've got their full-time business. And then in the evening, I think um, people are a little more thoughtful and reflective and a little more relaxed. So we can have a discussion that seems to work a little better in the evening. They're not up against this time pressure during the day where they have to get off the phone, you know, like everybody has to do. We can relax a little bit. And I think it helps me to do more quality work. And then the expectation is so much better that, okay, yeah, you'll see something maybe 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, right? maybe even 1 o'clock, right, rather than 9, 10, 11. And that way, if I need to, I have the day to get the work done, and then I can think about it before I talk to the client at night. So it's a little bit of a catered practice for evening people, but it works very well for me. Huh, that's really interesting. I mean, it goes to show that there is that you can create a, a firm and a lifestyle that works for you, and, and it also you know, there's going to be somebody out there who, who's a match for that. So that um, that makes a lot of sense. I want to talk a little bit about mediation because that is, a, you know, a part of what you do. And, you know, I think it's something that a lot of people don't necessarily know a whole lot about or they don't know how to get into it or how to take advantage of what mediation offers. So can you put on your mediator hat for a moment and, and just talk me through that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, mediation is a process where you have a neutral, a disinterested third party, the mediator, who comes into a confidential setting or meeting, either face-to-face or virtual now, and they assist the parties in settling the dispute. Um, the mediator does not have the power to render a judgment or and does not render anything binding and enforceable on the parties. But the mediator uses their skill and judgment, and I also say psychology, which is a real <laughs> big part of the practice, to help the parties move from the place they are and get to a place where they can resolve it. And, you know, and settlement doesn't always mean everybody's happy, but it's a place where 
we can make sometimes, sometimes concessions and be able to end the dispute and move on. And I, I really think it's valuable for IP because, as most people know, the IP cases can be expensive, just considering you know, patent litigation. The damages can be very, very high. The reputational costs can be unbelievable. And so if you try to resolve it in a confidential way, you don't have that public lawsuit, right, where people, reporters can see. And if you win or lose, it's not necessarily out there for the public to know. And, um, it, you know, most mediators, not all, but a lot of them are lawyers. For IP, a great deal of them are lawyers and judges. And still a different, you know, certain ways about using lawyers and judges. But you, you pick the mediator who works best for you. And so, like, for me, I can talk law with the lawyers and then I can talk business with the clients because I was more of a business lawyer in my practice. And so we could talk about the business cost and what their business is trying to achieve. And, you know, while I go talk with the lawyers and maybe take them aside and, and get into the nitty gritty of the law and the cases and the likelihood of success with the lawyer. So it's very satisfactory um, if you have people who are in there in good faith, even if the issues are difficult. That where they really want to settle and they have a better use of their time. And again, um, I think psychology is a really, really big part of mediation practice, understanding people, understanding personalities, because as you know, lawyers, we have a, a very interesting personality sometimes, and that can affect the outcome, especially if the lawyer is a litigator who's used to win-lose versus a transactional lawyer who may be more, you know, concessions or win-win, but I win a little bit more. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a very interesting trade, um, very interesting mediation cases. I've done trade secret cases where the parties were just screaming at each other. Oh Lord, I'd have a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't help it, right? The uh, the plaintiff is accusing the defendant of theft, and they're angry about that. Mm-hmm. And usually, the defendants are saying, "Well, the plaintiff, and especially if they're a competitor, they're just out for a fishing expedition, to, you know, to learn all my my secrets." Mm-hmm. So having to balance that's really interesting. Um, the trademark cases, I really love those. I have to admit, those are my favorites, working through the you know, the likelihood of confusion. Copyrights, for a while I was doing a lot of the um, textile cases with very well-known law firms, and I did that for a, a good while. It's all over the map, real estate. I like the business, business divorce cases, but I think I like IP the best. I think the, the top the, the subject matter is challenging, and it's something I'm interested in, so that's where I provide the most value to clients. Makes sense. And let me just say, you mentioned personality, and every time I've spoken to you, met you in person, or spoken to you on the phone, you always have this positive kind of vibe and affect, and do you think that is something that is helpful as a mediator, or is it something you you know, you know, try to play up or focus on, or it just comes naturally? You know, you know that's really me. It, it really is. I don't know why. I have, no, I have no reason to be happy all the time, but I just... I'm, <laughs> But I think if you, you, you know, it, it really depends on the parties. Some lawyers are coming into the mediation and they want to use you as a tool to get the other party to do what um, they want them to do. And I understand that. And so it really depends. If the other party is not playing along, sometimes the lawyer will get so mad and do a, you know, screaming and yelling fit, you know, like sandbox stuff. So I have to use psychology to get them where I need them to go. And I think being happy and upbeat during the caucus, um, you know, in mediation, you have sometimes you have a, a group meeting with everybody, and then sometimes you 
do a separate meeting with the party and council. That's called a caucus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's a long hurry up and wait as parties are thinking about things. And I think being upbeat and making people laugh really helps during the mediation because I'm a little silly. <laughs> and I love cars and things, motor and engine. And so I'll start to talk about cars and racing. And then for some reason, there's always somebody there who has a classic car mm-hmm. or who has loves racing. And so we start to develop this trust based on common interests during the caucuses. And I think it really helps if I have, if they know that they can trust me. Trust is a really, really big thing in mediation. You don't want as a media to be disclosing what the other side has admitted or said. And so you have to really, they have to trust you that you're going to try to get them to the, um, the place where they need to be. I tend to call them way before the mediation. And sometimes I have a joint call with the uh, lawyers and we talk about what's going to happen at the mediation, almost like a settlement conference, you know, who's going to be there, what documents need to be introduced, what are the top three issues that if we resolve the case would go away. And then I have the, I ask the lawyers to draft a settlement agreement and I want them to work on agreeing on all the boilerplate. Then when we walk in there, we're just, we have, they have the settlement agreement already and we're just working on using numbers, right? Or at right. time, depending on what it is. And that gets the lawyers already starting to work together and, you know, um, and that really helps a lot by the time we get in there. I like it. So, Pivoting a little bit, we wanted to talk about statutory interpretation and intellectual property and the tools that are available for lawyers to kind of predict outcomes when there is a dispute or a question. That kind of sounds like, you know, kind of a a word salad or a lot, you know, kind of a heavy topic, but um, I know it's something that uh, you think a lot about. So uh, I want to hear your thoughts on that topic. Absolutely. And, and I have to preface this in just full disclosure. I love statutory interpretation. So I'm going to try my best not to sound overly enthusiastic about it because I know it sounds a little bit nerdy. No, we like, we like enthusiasm. People are listening to this <laughs> podcast. They need a little entertainment. So uh, feel free to let your personality shine, Erica. Okay. <laughs> well, statutory interpretation is the study of the canons and rules and guides that judges use to interpret statutes. I didn't know anything about this in law school. I guess it's an elective. And in my opinion, they should absolutely be teaching us. Law school should be teaching us the first years, right? What do lawyers do? All we do all day long, for the most part, is study language, is study words, is interpret words. And a great deal of our practice is interpreting statutes. Why wouldn't you want a course that teaches you how to interpret statutes? (laughs) Now, all of us, you know, we've learned grammar and punctuation and we've learned ways to t- look at uh, sentences and pull them apart. And, and, and you know, we, inherently we just have these things that help us match up noun and verb and all that kind of stuff. But statutory interpretation looks at some of that, but they also have rules that judges use and presumptions that judges use to help explain the language and provide meaning and to create clarity and really to determine what the legislature meant to say so they can apply it to the facts of the case. And these things aren't law, but the judges tend to use them a lot. And, you know, as I read cases, most people wouldn't pick up on these canons because you've never heard of them, like the justum generis. What the heck is that? But um, if you study statutory interpretation, 
you can read a case and it's like a roadmap. It's just amazing. You can read a case and you can see the judges using all these tools and canons to get to an outcome. And you're like, okay, they used a justum generis over here, or no satira associates right there, and constitutional avoidance over there. You know, and if you had, if you didn't know all these things, you would have no idea that this is actually a little canon or a rule that judges use. So, um, I think especially in intellectual property, it behooves lawyers to learn some of these things. Why? Because it helps you predict how a certain judge might rule on a matter because you know how the, this court or this jurisdiction feels or what tools they use to look at language. And also it helps you to be more persuasive. So if you're a litigator, or maybe even a contractor after it, right, you can use these tools in your briefs, right, motions and such to persuade this particular court because they like these types of arguments and the court uses these rules. They don't really use those other rules. Or if, if you want to use those other rules, you know how to get the court to agree to maybe look at those other rules. So I think it behooves lawyers to know these these canons and to at least have an idea. For example, we recently had that major copyright case of the Fourth Estate where it, it ruled that in order to bring a copyright lawsuit, you had to actually have a registration, right, not just an application. And that was a major change. Well, the court used the plain meaning rule right? Plain meaning rule that the words mean what they say. You know, the statute said registration. It didn't say application, right? They looked at kind of the literal interpretation of it. Well, when I'm reading that case, I'm thinking plain meaning rule, you know, ordinary meaning. Other people might not even think that. They'll see the court says, well, it says registration. But you know, this court is starting with the plain meaning rule, right? And so they may look at, some courts look at legislative history, others don't. There's certain types of legislative history that are more persuasive than others. There are other canons, like, like I said, no associates, the, the um, rule of last antecedent, um, there's uh, the serial comma rule. There's all these tools that the courts use when language may be um, ambiguous or absurd in its interpretation. So I, I think it's a good thing to just brush up uh, and learn these canons, see how your court, if, you're, if you have a case in a certain jurisdiction, to see how the, that jurisdiction, what tools they use. Do they lean toward more plain meaning and they don't want to look beyond the words and look at legislative history? How does how does this court use, what tools do they use and what do they not use to interpret language? And so, um, I mean, it's super, super interesting. I'd, I'd recommend lawyers pick up a book. I, I use a textbook when I teach um, Linda Jellum's The Legislative Process, like a statutory interpretation. It also talks about administrative agencies, which is super important for IP lawyers because you're dealing with the you know patent and trademark office you know how how do administrative agencies look at rules how do they make law um how are they interpreted and do courts um, defer to their interpretations or not and statutory interpretation can help you when you're dealing with IP related administrative agencies to make persuasive arguments and to know if you have to appeal it what what the courts are going to look at and how they judge regulations for administrative agencies so I I really would um. I would recommend getting some basic information, taking a basic course. California Lawyers Association, um, last year, we did a presentation on statutory interpretations for lawyers. I was actually the moderator on that panel. And we'll probably do another one again very soon. It might be nice to do one for IP specifically, and maybe to talk about the fourth estate case and how they use statutory interpretation in that case. But um, pick up something. I don't care if you even go to Wikipedia and just 
do a you know, do a very quick look at it and just understand some of the tools um, because I think it can really help their practice. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned a book, and I didn't uh, I didn't catch it. Can you can you say it again for the for the benefit of the listeners? Sure, it's Linda Jellum. Now, granted, this is a textbook, so you're not you're not going to want to read this whole textbook. But um, it's Linda Jellum, <laughs> right? The legislative process. Statutory Interpretation and Administrative Agencies. Okay, no, I'm not marketing or promoting the book, but I mean, that's one of the books that I use when I'm teaching. Go out and grab some articles on statutory interpretation. Grab some basic articles and, and read, you know, keep up with it. Harvard Law Review puts out articles dealing with statutory interpretation all the time. And you can, you can find it if you look for it, or, you know, your listeners can reach out to me if they would like some guides or, you know, some basics, I'm more than happy to talk about some basics and how it can help their their practice, especially if they're litigators and they're trying to persuade courts. It's a really useful tool. Well, your enthusiasm for this really shines through, so I appreciate that. And (laughs) speaking of reaching out to you, if somebody's listening and they do want to reach out to you either about that or about the IP section or maybe mediation services or something else, where's the best place to get a hold of you? Sure. So my email is Erica B. E R I C A B at um, my initials E B mediate M E D I A T E dot com. And I guess my cell is 818-744-3407. Um, I'd love to you know chat with people about some of these concepts or if they need mediation services, I'm happy to serve. That is uh, fantastic. So is there anything we didn't cover that uh, you wanted the listeners of uh, our podcast to uh, to hear? Absolutely. You need to watch a Formula One race or a MotoGP. <laughs> <laughs> you know, racing is so great. Um, that's, that's a big part of my life. I'm not going to lie to you. Friday, Saturday, Sunday is practice, qualifying, um, race. And my phone, um, the texts are going off with everything that happens from Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I tease the IP section because we tend to have XCOM meetings during race meetings. And I do my marketing report and I always have the Motorsports Minute. And I know some eyes are rolling up, but look, they have to know what's going on with the championships. And they, they won't admit it, but I know that when they see Formula One and, and MotoGP, they feel a little tingle because they, they know that it's something <laughs> special. <laughs> yeah, and and the uh, racers are socially distanced. They're, uh, you know, <laughs> at least six feet apart. So. It's uh, weird seeing races without fans, but it's, it's at least we're getting racing going on. I hear you. So, all right. Well, I hope you are uh, staying safe and healthy in these times. And uh, Erica, we really appreciate you coming and sharing all this info with us and everything you do for the IP section. It does not go unnoticed. It's very much appreciated. So thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. And you too, Dave, for these podcasts. Um, they're, they're really great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. The annual IP Institute has been canceled for 2020 for obvious reasons. Our flagship program will return to the California coast on October 28th through 30th, 2021 at the Laguna Cliffs Resort and Spa. But we have several MCLE webinars coming up soon, including one on when is a generic term not generic? What did the Supreme Court unleash in booking.com? And that's been a quite a popular topic in the trademark and intellectual property world, so I hope you check that out. For information about the webinars and other events, you can go to our website, calawyers.org slash IP events. So that's CA, like California, lawyers.org slash IP events. And if you're interested in joining the intellectual property law section, 
of the California Lawyers Association. Visit calawyers.org slash join IP. calawyers.org slash join IP. And finally, if you want to send us an email about the show, you can send it to ippodcast at calawyers.org. We look forward to hearing from you, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time on Intangible Assets. Thank you.